when Jesus was first telling this parable, that people were jumping to conclusions, and people would have immediately seen these things. This is stuff that was happening in everyday life in, 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 in this part of the world. And in verse 9, he also told this parable to some who... Now, here's the good thing. When you're reading the Scriptures and you want to know what a parable is about, because some of them can be confusing, look for clues in the context. Jesus tells us what this parable is going to be about. He's telling this parable to some people who trusted in themselves. He's trying to combat self-confidence and self-righteousness. Those things are not good. And so Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous or okay with God or that they were holy, acceptable to God. And then they thought themselves to be righteous and they treated others with contempt. So there is this situation that Jesus is trying to root out in, the, in his hearers any sense of self-righteousness, any sense of self-confidence, any sense of, I am okay with God because I'm a good person and I do good things. He's trying to root that out. And he's also trying to, to root out a hatred for other people that really is rooted in self-righteousness. If you want to make yourself feel better about your condition in life, go to Walmart. You will immediately feel better about yourself because you didn't try to wear a size small spandex pants when you shouldn't be wearing a size small spandex pants in public, right? You've been there. Don't act like you've never been to Walmart, folks. You're proving my point about depravity here, okay? (laughs) You know what I'm talking about. Like, wow, that's a little bit of clothes on a lot of person. And you just go to Walmart, you're like, look at how much education I have compared to that. Look at how much better in life I am doing than that person. Self-righteousness produces hatred because we like to put ourselves higher than other people so that we would look better in our own esteem. That is the nature of the human heart, apart from a drastic change by grace. And so Jesus is here to root that out of us. And so we see we're talking about how we approach God and how we approach people. You don't approach with a self-confidence that thinks that you're right before God. He's trying to root that out here. And don't approach others with contempt. In verse 10, he tells the story, the parable begins. Two men went up to the temple to pray. This is totally common. They would have seen this all the time. The picture would be in Jerusalem, people at the hour and the time of prayer. They would go up and people would pray. There's two men. Now, the two men mentioned here would immediately make Jesus' hearers jump to a conclusion. The first one is, he says, one of the two men who went up to pray, one was a Pharisee. It was someone who's instructed in the law, someone who knew the Bible, someone who worked at keeping the law of God even to a great, greater extent than you can even possibly imagine. They wrote books upon books upon books about how to keep the law. And they go on. It says one's a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. It is, <laughs> it's almost the same. In our common vernacular, okay, because we see a Pharisee and a tax collector, you may, you may go immediately back to Bible times, and it sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher talking or his mom. I don't know what that would have been like, what a Pharisee and a tax collector would be like. It would be like this. A holy preacher and a gangster went up to pray. Immediately, it's like a joke almost, you know, like these guys walk into a, a church, Okay. 
You got you got a you got a you got this this Bible teacher, the one who looks the part of a holy man, and you got a gangster walk into a church, or walk out in front of the temple. Immediately, what is you what do you what where did your thoughts go? And his readers would have done the same thing. Well, obviously, we know who the good guy is. I love to hear my little boy play and talk when he's playing because when he is doing that, I can hear his worldview in a lot of ways, which sometimes is scary, okay? It truly is. But sometimes you're like, because he has a very defined sense of right and wrong. And Now, when it comes to Star Wars, he likes the bad guys more than he likes the good guys. I don't blame him. The bad guys look cooler in, in that. But you can kind of hear his worldview here. And so we kind of do that in stories. Like, who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Who, who is this? Who is that? And so immediately when this story is being told, it, it's just obvious that Jesus is, Jesus is his, the people hearing his teaching would have said, ah, the, we know the Pharisee is going to be the good guy. We know the tax collector is an extortioner. We know he is going to be the bad guy. Now, why do we think this? Well, first off, who likes to pay taxes, right? Does anybody love it? Oh, yes, April 16th is coming, unless you're getting a refund, okay? I've reached the age where it's no longer a refund. It's always like, all right, how much are you going to hurt me this time, all right? I'm going to pay you, Mr. Tax Guy, so that you can tell me how much I have to pay the government, which already has a lot of my money. I'm always in a fantastic mood. You can ask my wife and mother. I'm always in a fantastic mood during tax time, right? You love to pay taxes. You love to give that money to Mr. FICA, right? You love it. So we don't like taxes, but they would hate tax collectors far more than we would. Not only that, because the tax collectors were working for, especially to somebody who was living in Jerusalem, where we have the temple, that's where this story is kind of set, and especially to a first century Jew, they are occupied by the Roman government. And so their taxes aren't going to good things in Israel necessarily, but they're going to Rome and to Caesar. And so this tax collector, a tax collector this time, would be working for a, a government who was imposing its will, a government who has invaded and is in control. So first off, they don't like, it's not even to your own government, it's to a, a, a government who has come in and taken control. Secondly, the reason they would hate tax collectors is because they had to make their money. See, they didn't have a salary per se, so the way that tax collectors in this time period made their money was by charging more taxes than, than was due. And this man, in, in this situation, we see he's a tax collector, right? And, and he has, he, he would have been a, a, probably a rich person because he extorted other people. How would you like it if you got your tax return back? And man, it's right around the corner, right? It's April 15th. Is that the day of reckoning? Okay. Can you imagine if you found out your accountant was charging you more taxes than was due so he could line his or her pocket with that? Would you be very excited about that? Well, you'd be on the phone with the police. <laughs> you'd be like, put them underneath the jail, okay? you get you get Batman voice on them, okay? Like, I'll kill you, okay? I mean, that that's where you'd get. There is an anger that would be there, and that's what these guys would do. That is how they made their money. So immediately, when they talk about a Pharisee, this religious person who tries to keep all the laws of God, and you see the gangster, extortioner, tax collector, the people's mind would have been like, the Pharisee's obviously the good guy. The tax collector was good at me stealing my money. But this gets turned upside down. When we see this, the Pharisee, now they're coming to prayer, and they, we see two different postures. And starting in verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself 
prayed thus. Now, there's a couple ways of understanding that phrase, standing by himself. Um, it, it's, it almost has the idea of a person who is trying to draw attention to themselves. You have seen people like that, and if you haven't, you might be a person like that who likes to draw attention to themselves. Jesus spoke about these people in Matthew chapter 6. He says, he talked about Matthew chapter 6 verse 1, he talks about beware of practicing your righteousness in front of other people. Because you get your reward there. You're not really practicing righteousness. You're practicing so people will look at you and think, oh, look how righteous that person is. And so we have an example of here in story of a Pharisee who was praying, standing by himself. It wasn't the idea of standing away from other people or praying as a private thing. It was the idea of, please look at me. It almost has the idea of him standing in front. He would have been the guy, if he was here today, this morning praying, he would have made sure that he got the spot either down here at the front or right in the door so you could see the person praying and see how holy they were as soon as you walked in. Look at that holy person. That's how it would have been. And so he's setting praying by himself. That is an emphasis in the text. Then it says this, he prayed like this. So not only we have his posture, which is, hey, everybody, look at me. I'm praying. Look at how holy I am. If you got kids, you know what this is like to Hey, come watch me play. Hey, hey, come watch me draw, because that's fun, right? <laughs> Love to watch people draw, unless it's Bob Ross, and I don't know, I fall asleep with that one. You can watch all that on, on, on Amazon, like, oh, happy little tree. If you don't know what that is, God bless you. Go Google that, okay? Come watch me draw. Come do this. This guy is like, come look at how holy I am. Standing by himself praying, and then I want you to notice how many times he uses the word I. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even tax collectors. This is kind of humble brag if you ever heard of that. God, I thank you that I am awesome unlike all these other people around me who are obviously not awesome. And he goes on and he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, more holy than they are, extortioners. It's almost like he has in view this tax collector because that's exactly the role of a tax collector is an extortioner. And he will mention him just a few verses later. Unjust means he doesn't do justice to people. God, thank you that I don't extort people. Thank you that I'm not unjust like other people. God, thank you that I am not like that person who's burning with lust and, and is falling into it. Thank you that I'm not like adulterers. God, thank you that I'm not even like this tax collector. You can almost see the disdain. At this point, the man is in such a posture, if it rained, he would drown because his nose was turned up so far up to the heavens. This is the epitome of self-righteousness. But from the outside looking in, some might say he's a holy man. Remember, he's the Pharisee uh, next to the gangster. And then it goes on. Not only does he talk about how better he is than other people, wrong standard, he is also talks about how many good things he does. In verse 12, he says, I fast twice a week. This is way beyond what the law requires. He's one of those overachievers. He's the kid that wants not one gold star, but two. If there was an A++, he'd be aiming for it. 
He wouldn't settle for the silver star. He had to go all the way. I fast twice. I go without food. It's funny, Jesus would talk about fasting in the Sermon on the Mount, too. He says, when you're fasting, don't make yourself look wretched and go, oh, I'm fasting. It hurts so much. I'm doing it for the Lord because I'm so holy. He talks about it the same way. You got your reward here. Remember, this guy is up front. He's praying to himself, if you will, and that could mean he's, his words aren't even getting past the ceiling tiles or getting past a couple of feet off of his, you know, or the sound of his voice and not making it to heaven. It could mean if we do have this idea, he's standing in front of everybody praying, God, thank you. I'm not like these other people who just are awful. Thank you that I'm more holy than they are. And God, thank you that I do such good things for you. I go over and above, and I fast. I go without food for quote-unquote spiritual purposes, and I want people to know that, especially you, God. I'm going to put you in my debt. You know, he goes on, I give tithes of all that I get. Now, there's a funny idea here when we come to tithing and Pharisees. There's even this idea, and I don't know if they actually did this, but this idea was there that they used to count their very plants. And they go, and a tithe means a tenth. And so this wouldn't be just giving of their income, but they would even, as some of them would, trying to strictly keep the law and putting law upon law upon law, they would even, some of them, at least as the, the thought process would go, at least in hyperbole, they would go, let's see, I got a whole bunch of corn growing here, and I don't think they grew corn in Palestine, but let's go. I don't remember what they grow. Maybe wheat, okay? Maybe every tenth wheat plant, they're like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, that's mine. Tenth God, okay, here. There was this idea of a hyper-spirituality, a hyper-rule-keeping in a way that you pat yourself on the back to the point that your arm's about to wear out. God, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of everything I get. Thank you that I'm not like these extortioners unjust. I do all the things right. And so the person that you would have thought at the beginning would have been the one who would be acceptable to God, is the one who is showing his own self-righteousness and his disdain for other people. The sin is evident even in his religious activities. But then the unlikely hero comes to the forefront. Not a hero because he's done the right thing, but a hero because he has come to the Lord as he should. We see this in verse 13, it says this, but the tax collector, standing far off, note the difference in the posture. The Pharisee, let's make sure I get the proper praying spot so people can see how great I am. Let's make sure that I am in the place standing in front. The tax collector is different, standing far off. He's away from the things, he's away from the public sight. He probably feels an unworthiness to approach the temple, which represents God's presence. And so he's standing far off, and it says he would not even lift his eyes up to the heavens. He had a knowledge of his sin and his unworthiness, and he will not look up. He was by himself far off. His posture shows his humility, his brokenness, if you will. And he beat his breast, and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
you have references here, I think you can go ahead and, and see Psalm 51 if you want to go read that about David's penitent prayer after he committed the sin with Bathsheba and had Uriah killed. God, he, the, the postures are totally different. The posture of the one is self-righteous, self-confidence. Look how great I am. Look at how bad everyone else is compared to me. He's missing the mark. He's missing the standard. He doesn't even realize that in his very prayers, the, in the Pharisees' very prayers, he is showing, he's breaking the second great commandment, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. He's so filled with, with, with a pompous religiosity that he is so filled with hate and he cannot see that he is and how he looks at other people. And he is not approaching God or man as he ought. But there is this man who is obviously a sinner, who has been an extortioner, who has, who has done sin, who obviously is working for the occupying government. And he recognizes, because of we understand grace here, he recognizes he's messed up, he screwed up, his sin has made him unworthy, and he comes in humility, standing far off and just asking, pleading for the mercy of God. If you have your own copy of God's Word, circle merciful. We're going to come back to that because that's an important word. Now, here is where people would have gasped at the story. Do you remember the movie Sixth Sense? If you haven't seen it, look, look, the the time has passed, okay? There's a twist ending in that. If you haven't seen that, okay, there's a a twist where the the guy, Bruce Willis, in the movie is actually dead. And everybody's like, oh, my gosh, he was dead the whole time. You watch it again, like, what a twist ending. And the first time you saw it, you're like, I didn't see that coming. This story was like that for people who would have known the stereotypes of their day. When When verse 14 hits... This would have made people go, made people gasp. Verse 14, I tell you, the man who went down to his house justified, justified being here, not using it in the full sense that Paul would use it, but once you understand this, it means right with God. The one who went home right with God is this. I tell you, the man who went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The man who goes home justified is the tax collector and not the religious person. And people would have been like, are you kidding me? First off, they have all the prejudice against the Roman government, plus they have the prejudice of all of the finances, and they know the guy's an extortioner, and they, 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 they would have seen that, and then they, they were saying, well, the Pharisees, they know the Bible, they, they do all these religious deeds, but Jesus says the one who's right is the one who asks for mercy and comes with a contrite heart, comes with a broken spirit, who comes beat down by his sins, not trying to hide his sin in his own religiosity, but comes forward clearly and says, he, he's, look at his posture, he's not near the temple, he won't look up to heaven because he realizes he's not worthy to look at God, and then he asks, is God be merciful to me, a sinner? This word merciful... It only appears in the New Testament in the verbal form in this particular instance. We get the other word, we get the noun form of this word. It's in the Bible a lot, and it's the word propitiation. Propitiation, which means an atoning sacrifice. It means to appease anger through sacrifice. Propitiation has the idea of the wrath of someone being appeased by the pouring out of that wrath on another. It's used of Christ. 
And so we see here that, that Jesus is our propitiation, that all the wrath of God was poured out on him so that all who believe in him might have eternal life and peace with God because Jesus bore our wrath for us. Now, why would he say this? Because Jesus has not yet gone to the cross. We know that because Luke 18, he's not gone to the cross yet. It's coming at the end of the gospel. So when he says, be merciful to me, a sinner, Jesus is, Jesus is pointing towards what's going to happen when he goes in just a few weeks to the cross. But he also saying, be merciful. This word right here that's translated merciful is the only time it appears in a verb form. And I want you to understand that this means he is asking. Think about where they are. Remember where they are? They're at the temple praying, right? What would be happening at the temple, especially during the times of prayers? Sacrifices would have been being made. And his plea for mercy has, with that word merciful here, has with it the idea of, God, let what is going on in the temple the sacrifices that are meant to cover over sins, that are meant to take the blame for sin, let that somehow cover me that I might be right with you. It all points to Jesus. See, here's the good thing. The people that go home right with God recognize their need for an atoning sacrifice on their behalf. They don't see any pride in themselves. They see a need for mercy. The Pharisee had a need for mercy because he hated people and because he thought he could be right with God on his own. And even in trying to be right, it's funny, in trying to be righteous, he was sinning because he did not love his neighbor as himself, breaking the second great commandment. That's a big one. If Jesus summed up the law and the prophets to two and you're breaking one of the two, you're in a bad, you're in a bad spot. I got 50% of them right. But even in doing that, he wasn't loving God because men are created in God's image. So he's, he's failing the whole test, but he thinks he's passing. He's patting himself on the back. Look how good I am. So here is what Jesus says. Those who are right with God don't come to him with spiritual self-confidence and hatred for other people. Those who come to God must approach him knowing their state and their status, which is nada, and knowing that they need some, they need God to cover over their sins. This is fulfilled in Jesus. And then he says these words here. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The Pharisee will be humbled. Either he'll come to a knowledge of his sin by the grace of God, or when he faces the judgment day, trusting in himself, he will know that he failed. But, it says, the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Remember this from James 4. We talked about it. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So here's, here's how I want to connect this all. You see this here. Jesus turns everything up on its end, on its, on, upside down. The person who should be the hero in our eyes is, is not. 
the one who is the good guy in the story is the one who has sinned and fallen short and, and recognizes it, and he comes, and he knows what the psalmist says, that a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not cast out. And he comes, and he pleads for mercy, and the mercy he's pleading for is, God, let my sins be covered and the punishment be paid by a sacrifice. We know this, that there's a greater sacrifice coming, the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus, that all who believe in him can ha- will not perish but have eternal life, and their sins will be covered, and the wrath of God is taken care of, and there's restored relationship no matter how bad you are. And that should lead us to humility in how we approach God. A little prematurely, but nevertheless, they arrived. We had 5,000 Easter invitations that are on the loose here in the surrounding counties. I say 5,000 homes these are going into. We are in a push right now for the next two weeks coming up, April 9th and April 16th. We are going to two services, not because we're busting at the seams yet, because we want to make room for the people we are inviting because we know that we that everyone needs Jesus and apart from him we all deserve the wrath of God but God in his grace did not leave us in this place he sent his son Jesus and so we are preaching Jesus and that's our he is he came lived a perfect life he died he rose he's ascended and we are celebrating that and we want to get this message out and so that's why we have these invitations and we spent the money that's why we were, we're going to put ourselves and and put ourselves inconvenience ourselves to kind of open the doors and change our service times and and have the kids be down there a little bit longer than usual and have our adults work extra for in the children's ministry and the sound booth and up here. That's why we're doing this is to make much of the name of Jesus because people cannot come to God on their own. They don't have any chance on their own. Their righteousness and their good deeds won't do it. The only way they can come to God is to see their need of him and to come and believe on the one who has made a way, who has appeased the wrath of God, who has made a way in Christ. And so we are imploring people, be, see yourself and approach God humbly. Approach him not with thinking you got it all together, but come to him, ask for mercy, and he will give it to you in Jesus. And so we're, we're opening the doors. We're saying, come in. We're going to the highways, the byways, the hedges. We're going everywhere. We're going to the park. We're going to, to, to down the street. We're going into places, roads I didn't even know existed around here, okay? And I'm sure they're windy and half of them are gravel, okay? We're going imploring this message because we know And we believe that there's only one right way to approach God, and that is with the humble knowledge of your sin and the expectant faith to know that God is full of grace and that he exemplified that in Jesus Christ. So how do we approach God? We are approaching God with humility. But secondly, this Easter season, we don't just need to do that. We must approach others with a love that springs from humility. No one wants, <laughs> if you're reading the story rightly and the Spirit is, is speaking and pointing you to the truth, you don't want to be like that guy, the Pharisee. You know that guy. You don't want to be that guy. That guy is the jerk at the restaurant. That guy is the one that's like, hey, I'm sorry. I need to take this back, okay? That guy is the one who is annoying. That guy is the one who points out all your flaws. And that guy is the one who comes in with the passive-aggressive comment and the backhanded compliments. You know what I'm talking about. 
Oh, that looks good, except for it's awful. This is really, you guys have done a really good job in this church, but look back there at that. And you're going to about, I know some of you are like, what? Okay, <laughs> okay, you'll see them. Okay, there's plenty of those things. That, don't be that guy. You know that guy. That person who is fi- the fault finder, the one who is coming out and seeing all these things. Sadly, people in our community have seen a Christianity that is heavy on bad news, but light on good news. And I have told you this many times and believe this wholeheartedly, that the Christian message, the message of Christ, the gospel, has to have the bad news in it. (laughs) You're a sinner, and I'm a sinner. And that sin separates us from God, and apart from Christ, there is no other way. And yes, the things you're doing that are sin. But without the good news, you're not preaching the gospel. You're just getting angry at people's morality. And most of the time, you're just being a hypocrite. We must approach people with the same attitude, understanding that we are in need of grace just as much as the people we talk to. We must approach others with love, a love that springs from humility. This involves identification, not condemnation. This involves identification, not condemnation. When we approach people, we need to approach them with identification, not condemnation. Now, what do I mean by this? Okay, first and foremost, I want you to understand this. Jesus is the only person who ever has lived on the planet Earth that could ever say, you sinners. You know why? Because he never did. We have to say, when we speak to people, we sinners. Now, I know some of you are like, well, no, I'm justified. You are. But you're still in the process of being sanctified, and the only reason you've been justified is because you believed in Jesus. It wasn't anything good you did. So stop trying to be so stinking proud of yourself. And it's so off-putting to the whole world. We must say we sinners. And look, I want to prove to you this. Jesus is the only one who could ever say, hey, you sinners, because he didn't do it. But yet, what did he do? He came and identified with us, leaving the glories of heaven, coming to earth to take the form of a servant. And he is, if anyone had the ability and the right to say, you sinners, go to hell, it was him. But you know what he did? In his mercy, he humbled himself. And what happened? He's exalted to the highest place. So identification, if Jesus, the one and only, identified and didn't condemn directly, how much more do we need to identify with people? Identification is more like, I, it, it's this. It's, it's an evangelism and a talking to people about coming to church that does not start with, hey, you stink. <laughs> it starts with, hey, I've struggled with sin myself. I've known that I was a sinner, but the Lord found me when I was in a dark, dark spot. And he showed me my sin was wrong, and he showed me I had a need. And the only way that need could be met was in Christ. Identification starts with understanding that the people you're talking to are in the same boat, but for the grace of God that you were in. 
So we need to involve, what does that look like? How should we approach each other's this Easter? It's with identification, not condemnation. Now, this does not mean you do not speak the truth. But I do want you to know something. You need to speak the truth boldly. You speak it truly. But you need to realize something. This, if you want to tweet something about this message, this is it. You are not the Holy Spirit of God. Okay? Because here's the thing. A lot of people think that it's our job to convict the world of sin. No. Jesus said when he sends the Spirit, the Spirit of God, this is John 16, 18, 16 verse 8, that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sins. Some of you need to not to stop being, trying to be the Holy Spirit in your life. You may be provoking your children to anger. You may be the belligerent friend that no one wants to invite for coffee. You may be the last one that someone wants to come to with a spiritual problem because you're going to give them the right answer. I'm not talking about not telling them the truth. That's not, that's a lie, and that's wrong. But I am saying this. It is not your job to convict a world of sin. It's the Spirit of God's. So you speak the truth, truly. Speak it boldly. But don't be a jerk. What it boils down to. How many of us think this? Sometimes, growing up, a lot of people think that the more curmudgeonly you become, the more holy you are. Where is that in the Bible? The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We think it's the fruits of the Spirit are judgmentalism, hypocrisy. Hey, I'm better than you-ism. Okay, whatever you want to put in there. That's, that's a lot of hyphens if you're going to write that out. When you think that, because you think about some people that you've known in church, that I've known some of these people in my life, sadly, that they've been in church for 60 years and been knowing Jesus for this long, and you would think that this person, you got to go to them and get some wise counsel, and they'll be like, you see what they're wearing? Can you believe they did that song? Can you <sighs> pat myself on the back because I'm more holy than you? There you go. The fruit of the Spirit is not cantankerousness. This is joy, and it's an identification with other people, and it's just not condemnation. It's you, and you're going to trust the Spirit of God to convict the world of sin. Speak Scripture boldly and truly, but lovingly. How do we approach people? We approach God. First off, we approach God with humility, knowing that we don't deserve a thing. Nothing, as the hymn writer once said, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And out of our humility and brokenness and the grace of God, which has been lavished upon us when we did not deserve it, we must speak with other people with love and truth. Ephesians, go back and check this out. Ephesians 4, 14 through 15 says this, So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He says this, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Speaking the truth in love, and we know this, if we have the truth, but we don't have love, 
1 Corinthians 13 rebukes us. By the way, 1 Corinthians 13 is to the church. It is not for weddings. You can use it as a wedding. And there are some implica- there are definitely implications that you could use in a wedding. But some of us, when we're reading the Bible, we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're like, oh, this is about, the, 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 you know, this is about God's church. Chapter 13, this is about marriage. <laughs> love is patient. Love is kind. And then it goes back to the church in chapter 14. It doesn't happen that way. Context is key. So before you go reading that, you can read it at your marriage. That's totally fine because it does apply across. But I want you to know something. 1 Corinthians 13 is about the church and being in the church and speaking truth in the church. So let me just read this to you so we can be sure about this. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clashing cymbal. I invite you when the football games come back around here in Trousdale County and we get out there and we get after it. I invite you to go sit by the band, especially the drum line, and I want you to sit right by those cymbals, and I want you to hear what it's like, how abrasive and honestly <laughs> mind-numbingly annoying it is to sit by cymbals in that close to decimal level. If you are speaking the truth without love, that is you. You hear this? The gospel doesn't make us angry. The gospel makes us weep for those who don't know it. It makes us weep over our own condition. It makes us ready, and it should push us on to tell of the grace of God because we are beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. We have found life, and we have known our sin and our depravity, but we came and we asked for covering, and in Christ we have found covering for our sins and restore relationship with God. And we are imploring other people not to be better, but to be reconciled to God through Christ. Come as you are. Come to the fountain. Come without anything in your hand. Bring your screw-ups, your failures, your mistakes, your sins. Bring your deadness. Bring the open tomb that is your mouth, because out of it flows death. Bring it to the cross of Christ. And we, if we are going to speak to a generation, to a a world in need of a Savior, we must speak truth in love. If not, we are just loud, annoying, arrogant, pompous, religious jerks. And the world has enough of those. We need to be grace-filled Jesus-focused, humiliated people realizing the depths of our need and realizing the heights of His grace who love. And, and we recognize that while we were yet sinner, Christ died for us and He condescended and He identified and so we must condescend and identify and not say you sinners, but we sinners. There is a way to truth. And so how? The, the, first, the first call for you today is some of you are in here and you're dead in your sins and you're trying to be righteous enough on your own. You're trying to do religious deeds enough to make you right with God. You will never be right with God apart from Jesus. So humble yourself. Confess your sins and, and ask for Christ's forgiveness and He will save you. Secondly, some of us, oh, we have been Noisy gongs and clashing cymbals, full of truth but lacking grace. And as we go to our world, we need a tear in our eye and humility in our heart as we proclaim 
the good news of Christ. That if you say, be merciful to me, a sinner, he will be. And he will not only just pass it over, but he'll say, it's like he did with the prodigal. My son has returned. Let's kill the calf. Let's have a party. Get the ring. He's not working at my house. He's, the, he's part of the house. Get the clothes. He's home. Let's throw, a, let's throw a big time party because that is the grace of God. It doesn't make us angry. It makes us grateful. It makes us people who speak truth and love. How do you approach God? You must approach Him with humility. How do you approach others? You must approach them with the love that springs from humility. Don't forget this, folks. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Oh, and how we need grace. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. If you will, we're going to bow together and just take a moment and just... uh, this is, we're going to call this a marinate moment. If you would, and just think about the Word of God and what the Lord has spoken to you today. Ask the Lord to work within you to show hypocrisy. If you're not in Christ, I invite you to trust Him. If you are in a place of self-righteousness, I invite you to stop trusting yourself and start trusting Christ. I invite you, if you're in that place of um, spiritual pride and you're a believer, I invite you to confess that sin. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I also ask you right now, if you would, as you're praying under the, under the power of the Spirit, I ask you to pray that God would use you this week and the weeks to come to extend grace to other people in the form of invitations, in the form of speaking Christ, in the form of showing love and humility to them. Ask God to put people in your life and in your path this week that you might share the good news with or share an invite with. Lord, we come in humility, thankful for grace, praying that you would bless our feeble efforts to get the gospel out and work mighty wonders. God, save the lost. And God, encourage the saints to seek the lost. for your glory. Amen.